DC Public Library podcast is made possible in part by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and is a production of the labs at DC Public Library. You're listening to DC Public Library podcast recorded from the Recording Lab Studio in historic modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, DC. This is Get Lit, a series on everything literary and book related. Hello, I'm your host, Christopher Stevenson, also Adult Services Librarian at Parklands Turner Library. That was The Last of Agram, traditional Irish song featured in James Joyce's The Dead. Today, we've got quite a show for you. We've got two pieces by Kim Anderson. Watch out, they're quite a delight. We also have a small editorial by Reverend Veronica Graves, and uh, she will talk about the importance of holidays. Holidays seem to be important to all of us. And talking to my mother the other day, it's hard to remember that everyone's holidays are different. Me and Elaine, my partner, we come from completely different backgrounds, and so holidays will often mean completely different things to both of us. Even the way that they are done are just different. Holidays were not always a particularly uh, happy time for me uh, growing up. Um, No surprise to any of you who know me or have heard me, but um, for a lot of people they are wonderful, and certainly in my adulthood they are magical. We've already got the Christmas tree up. We have Christmas decorations out. We have already watched at least 10 Christmas movies. And uh, we watch about 20 Christmas movies a year, if not more. Professor Michael Scott came one time, told me that there are 30 holidays between Thanksgiving and New Year's Day. And he would say to his students that you should go out and try to celebrate one of them, or whichever one means the most to you. To me, holidays do have this sense of family attached to it that overruns many of the religious aspects, which, you know, I'm sure that many of the people that I grew up with would would not, not be pleased. And while Christianity has certainly played a very big role in my life, so has been exploring my ancestors' religions of Judaism, Islam, and also Hinduism. As you will hear later, find the lights in what it is that makes you happy this season. Because at the end of the day, that is what we're looking for. 
at least in the Northern Hemisphere. And I don't think it's an accident that the winter solstice, the darkest day of the year, is on the 21st of December. Find that light. Find that light however you might and treasure it, whether it is with friends, family, by yourself. But with that, let's get on with this. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, uh, kick this off with this hilarious story by Kim Anderson. Where are my keys? By Kim Renee Anderson. Have you ever experienced any of the following scenarios? You're about to leave for work, but can't find your house key, or you're checking at, out at the grocery store, open your wallet to get your credit card, and notice it is missing, or the glass of orange juice you poured yourself right before answering the telephone has miraculously disappeared. If you answered yes to any of these statements, no, you're not an airhead or having a senior moment. This happens all the times in our lives, and now I will tell you why. The truth is that you are probably sharing your home with Ein Bertel Zoll Menschen. What are they? One-fourth inch sized human beings just like the borrowers in the 1952 novel by English author Mary Norton. These little people live, work, and die just like we do. Only difference is that they reside in our homes. And if you think, I lost my mind or I'm not in touch with reality, I will give you proof they exist. As a six-year-old growing up in Spanish Harlem, I was always fascinated with the array of plants my southern bred parents would have throughout our apartment. And we even had pet fish I shared with my siblings, my sister Sybil, and identical twin brothers Jeffrey and Gregory. And I also had two tiny turtles, Eddie Figueroa and Tina Santiago. Their home was a fish tank in the corner of my bedroom I shared with my sister. One afternoon, my mother came into my bedroom happily humming in her angelic high-pitched voice, Amazing Grace, and nonchalantly watered the plant hanging from the ceiling corner. It had branches that stretched out like long arms. As she walked out humming, suddenly out of the corner of my eye, I see one of the plant leaves beginning to move. Then I heard a tiny splash coming from Ed and Tina's tank. Without hesitation, I raced over to take a look and to my astonishment, there were 14 one fourth inch people in the tank. Four boys, four girls, two sets of parents and two sets of grandparents. The adults were all relaxing reading the newspaper and the kids were all playing games with Ed and Tina. I was in complete shock to say the least and overwhelmed with happiness and I yelled out in excitement, Mommy! Daddy! Sybil! Gregory! Jeffrey! Come quick! Like the rumble of football fans excitedly stomping their feet at a game, my family ran into the room yelling, Kim! What's wrong? What's wrong? And I yelled, jumping up and down, pointing toward the plants, yelling, there are little people in my turtle tank. And turned and looked simultaneously as my family looked, but the little people were not there. It was as if they vanished. A few minutes later, my parents shook their heads, smiling, saying, Kim, you have quite an imagination, and that's very good. And that's why we love you. But don't scare us like that, please. And they walked out the calm walking out the room calmly, chatting about our upcoming summer family trip to Portland, Oregon to visit Uncle John and Aunt Sally and cousins. On the other hand, my siblings mocked me, looking around the tank and room like detectives perusing a crime scene, then walked out laughing hysterically. And poor little four-year-old me, with vision blurred by my tears of shame, began to cry. Then I heard a motherly little voice say, Hey there, don't cry. I looked up and the entire family of little people had returned, some waving hello at me, some riding the turtles, others reading the newspaper. It was as if they never left. Then, 
A one-fourth inch woman came towards me, handing me a minuscule sized tissue saying, my name is Mrs. Maria DeMarco. We all just relocated from Jackson Heights, Queens. Sorry we had to do that, but if your family saw us, they put us on display at the Museum of Natural History behind the glass like they did my great-grandmother Maria Caruso, God rest her soul. As soon as she does this, Mrs. DeMarco looks up to the sky and somberly makes a sign of the cross. It was at that moment Mrs. DeMarco told me about the history of one-fourth inch people living amongst regular-sized humans since the beginning of time and how their survival depending on the respect, food, and water we provided for them. And when their needs are not being met, they take items from us as a warning, eventually returning things. And I was shocked to find out that our apartment was a secret list of safe houses for one-fourth inch people. It was on this list. And I was designated a caregiver responsible for their safety for the rest of my life. This was news to me as I was only six years old and still in training on how to braid my hair, hoping to graduate in a month or two to the delight of my array of dolls. That was quite a few years ago, and as you can see, I'm an adult now, but today I still look after the DeMarco family, and at times I have items missing, reminding me that I'm not doing my job, but do not be fooled by their size. One one-fourth inch person has the strength of a grown human adult and can run as fast as a cheetah, but they are never vicious or mean. <sighs> Now that I've revealed my secret, I'm sure you all are wondering, how have I kept them happy all these years? Well, it's easy. The following steps are a guide to providing for one-fourth inch people and making them happy. Step one, nourishment. A, leave a monthly supply of water in a cup every 30 days. This is equivalent to 48 teaspoons or a cup of drops of water from a leaky faucet. But if you really want to get in good graces with them, Get a 10 fluid ounce bottle of water and leave the cap unscrewed. This is a two month supply. They love this. B, they're vegetarians. Leave a fingertip portion of vegetables on the kitchen counter in a spoon rest before you sit down to eat any meal. C, they love fruit, ice cream, and cookie crumbs. Once a week, leave three teaspoons of, of any in a cup. Step two, clothing hazards. A, Please, please be careful where you leave your clothes around your home. Many have been late for work or miss important family functions due to flying socks and tossed shoes. Most importantly, shake your clothes before putting them in the dirty clothes basket because some of them, these little people, have been accidentally put in the wash and reported missing by family members. Step three, A. Acknowledge them daily, yelling out loud in the room with the good morning or have a great day. And most of all, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, or Happy Holidays. By the way, they love this time of year. Step four, they absolutely love all genres of music, but please give a warning before turning on the stereo system so they can protect their eardrums with lint or fuzz balls. Now these steps I just gave you are simple, and I guarantee if you follow them, you'll never have to worry about missing house keys or items in your home again. On the other hand, if you do not follow these steps, the little people will become unhappy and can become quite rebellious. They do things like gently nudge you to spill a plate of food, break a glass, spill wine, or any beverage on the kitchen table or your clothes, and even distract you to burn something on the kitchen stove or let a tub of water overflow, especially bubble baths. And in extreme cases, they have caused leaky faucets, tampered with car engines, and when you really need to get somewhere, I know from personal experience, they will use a magnet to erase all your information on your computer. In conclusion, as a secret advocate for one-fourth inch people all these years, I urge you follow these steps for peace of mind. And if you wonder why I'm revealing their existence now, is because on behalf of Mrs. DeMarco, I'm notifying you that your home is on a secret list of safe houses for one-fourth inch people, and you or a designated caretaker. Eh, don't panic. You will do fine. Just don't forget to provide for them. Follow the steps I gave you and you'll know if they are unhappy. Your items will be missing.
why holidays are important. Holiday patrons honor them. Non-patrons usually ignore them, and others have their reasons to disdain them. I can't find fault with persons who do not celebrate certain holidays in America. I talked with a millennial, Jody. She's a registered nurse who cares for me to administer weekly chemotherapy infusions. We found ourselves to become quite close. She knows all about me. <laughs> the woman knows my blood type, for goodness sakes. And she has taken me into her confidence during the short periods of infusion time. She is a first-generation American Liberian born in Texas. Her parents are Liberian foreign nationals. She has relatives living locally and across the nation. They are a close family and visit often. She has a brother, aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, and nephews in the clan. Jody, what can you offer me in the way of viewpoint on this thought? why holidays are important. Her response was quick. She hardly took time to think about it, as if she had reconciled the thought in her mind years ago. Her reply shot out of her mouth like rapid fire. I don't. I don't think they are important. I think they are subjective. People assign importance to what is important to them. People just celebrate because the event is a way to spend time with family, family-only time. I say holidays are subjective because you set your own holidays. In Liberia, we celebrate Christmas with festival, food, family gatherings, and a wind-up of the year. There is no Santa Claus mentioned or imaged in the Liberian Christmas Festival. Peter Siegel wrote this in an article published in 2016 while he was an elementary school teacher of music. For over 15 years in four schools, now in Keene, New Hampshire. As we know, Many children base their impressions of holidays on what the commercial culture teaches them. There is, however, the potential for problems when we discuss religious themes in public school, like a parent complaining that they were preaching. I avoid sacred topics, but honor the stories, characters, and rituals of holidays as symbols of positive value. Parents seem to understand that teaching about the commonalities in holiday stories reinforces cultural understanding. How do we teach about holidays thoughtfully? When beginning a lesson about the winter holiday right around the Thanksgiving time, I question what is one thing of the winter holiday tradition we have in common? Among many correct answers, the one I'm looking for is light. The stories, traditions, and lore of Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and even Chinese New Year contain things like stars, fireworks, lamps, candles, and fire. Betty, an 83-year-old woman born in Georgia, moved into a rooming house in Cape May, New Jersey, when she was 17, and soon became the darling of the residence where everyone looked out for her safety and welfare. Betty is a member of the silent generation. People born in, from 1925 to 1942, they are called silent generation because they're not loud. Betty agreed with the designation, adding personal recollection to the grouping. We were, we were the silent group because we did not talk back when our parents told us to do something. We respected all adults. In a room, we were to be seen and not heard. We respected authority. We knew we were children, 
no matter how old we got. Betty, why are holidays important? Oh, I don't know. Holidays allow people the chance to celebrate and look forward to planning it, decorating, resting, recreational activities, aura and aura and aura. And they are particularly important for working folks because they can be with the family. At Christmas time, there were lights on the tree, fruit and nuts in a stocking, and one gift under the tree. No one person made the whole holiday meal. One person made the turkey, another made a side, and uncle brought the jug. I'm retired for 35 years now, and to me, every day is a holiday, because when I wake up, I give God thanks for another day on this earth to live and move and share and be. Each day is another chance to get it right, to try again, to enjoy the journey while doing so. The jury is still out, according to the notion of why holidays are important. Generations see holidays' importance or emphasize them differently. School teachers, methodology, lesson plans, and paradigms seem to change depending on what part of the United States we are teaching and that over the course of years in their careers. Here are a couple of questions about holidays in America. Where do you fall on these? Should America's presidential election day become a federal holiday? Or here's another question. Should the day after Super Bowl become a national holiday? And here's yet another question that comes to mind. The nomenclature. Why are some named federal days and others named national days? Are the terms federal holiday and national holiday the same? Who gets to decide that? Congress? Yes, Congress. Veterans Day was not always a federal holiday. It began as Armistice Day a proclamation made by President Woodrow Wilson on November 11, 1919, recognizing the end of World War I, which was known as the Great War, which actually ended June 28, 1919. Armistice Day remembers the veterans who fought and died in World War I. It observed with parades, public gatherings, and brief pauses in business. On June 4, 1926, Congress passed the resolution that the recurring anniversary of November 11, 1918 should be commended with thanksgiving and prayer and exercises designed to perpetuate peace through goodwill and mutual understanding between nations, and that the president should issue an annual proclamation calling for the observance of Armistice Day. It did not become Veterans Day, federal holiday, until 1938 when Congress passed the resolution. That question brings to mind other questions about holidays. Just as we can name a couple of them, how come we do not have a holiday for these two? Presidential Election Day and the day after the Super Bowl. Some think these are important days and worthy of being elevated to federal holiday status, at least national holiday status. There, now I've said it. The answers to a couple of those questions that may have come to mind. Once you've learned how much you may not have known about a holiday and how it becomes a holiday. I ask you to ponder these to find some of your favorite holidays, whether they may be St. Patrick's Day, 
Passover, Juneteenth, National Independence Day, July 4th, Independence Day. And by the way, Juneteenth was the last federal holiday added to the list in January 2021. Who was the first person who brought impetus to the thought for that holiday? What was the milestone or event that was important enough for it to become a holiday? What is the mood or passion of that holiday? And who's in charge of vetting new holiday approval dates into law? It's a bit over my head. In the meantime, I won't bother myself with the details of how it started or who first declared it. I'll be content to follow the percentage of Americans who choose which ones to observe and which ones not to observe. Whether you are a holiday patron or a holiday non-patron, there are aspects of the various feasts that we can all honor and certainly relate to. Generally, I apply Mama's proverb when I consider why holidays are important. My mom used to say this little proverb to me whenever I brought my teenage dilemmas, especially during the days when I was deciding my social affiliations, you know, selecting one girl click over the other girl click. She would say to me, the pattern may be different, but the stitches are basically the same. Specifically, I apply the word of God, the Bible, when I consider why holidays are important. According to the book of Genesis, chapter one, verses one through chapter two, verse three, they are important because God is holy and God made days. Three syllable word itself gives strength to it. Holiday or holy day. Actually, in my economy of thought, each day the sun rises is a holy day because it is the day the Lord made. Psalm 118, verse 24. Holidays do so much for us. They emphasize the nation's strength. They define a single purpose. They keep track of history. They draw families together. They create friendships and they make memories. Perhaps you would follow the holiday lessons that Peter Siegler teaches his elementary school students. The winter holidays have in common lights and fire. But the next time a holiday comes around, take a close look at it and see the affirming values or virtues then consider whether you find those qualities important enough to honor or celebrate. If not in kind, then perhaps in spirit. DC Public Library, find your story. Well, listen, I'm Veronica. I'm Veronica Graves, born Veronica Edwina Lyles, 1954, right here in Washington, DC. I was born to Edward Lyles, age 17, in the 11th grade at the time he was, and um, Helena Briscoe, and she was 15, my dear mother. Uh, they're both deceased now. I am uh, educated in D.C. public schools, uh, attended and graduated Howard University, uh, and I'll tell you, it was 1976. It was the bicentennial year, and uh, graduated seminary, Capital Bible Seminary, right here locally in Lanham, Maryland. Uh, that was in 98, after I heard the call to ministry to prepare and educate myself to serve the community of Christian leadership and members. And so I'm married for 43 years to Mr. Marcus Levi Graves. And um, we are, are both from DC, he's from DC as well, but he has um, Southern roots, so I learned to be a little Southern girl uh, <laughs> learned to can and to do other, you know, cooking that Southern folk like to do. Um, I am trying to write my memoir. Uh, as, as life has it, uh, turns and twists come about. The past 13 years I've been battling cancer, uh, multiple myeloma as it is, which is uh, 
cancer of the bone marrow and it metastasizes to the bone. It, it likes to do that. Um, I, my bones are very delicate, very weak. I, I can roll over in the bed and crack a, crack a rib. Um, but um, when I was uh, starting the chemo, uh, about a year into it, I had this horrible auto accident and I sustained a closed head trauma, severe concussion. And for eight years, I could not read, I could not write, I could not walk, I could not talk. I could not sign my name on a piece of paper. Actually, that was for the first two years. But the remaining six years, I was rehabilitating. I had to be rehabilitated. And so I've had to learn to do so many things that most people take for granted. I had to learn to do them again while undergoing chemotherapy. And so it's time in, in, in my personal timeline to put uh, the sum of my life on the page. And it's been a real challenge because uh, the concussion has made a lot of those memories vanish. They're in there, just tucked in another place. And I can't find them readily all the time. But oftentimes, I will get inspiration and stimulus from a song, a thought, a conversation, a visit uh, with friends on a luncheon. Something will spark my mind and then I begin to flow onto the page. And so had it in my mind to write my memoir. So I'm, I'm well along the way. Uh, there's lots to be done, uh, lots of editing to be done, but I, I believe I have something to leave on the page for those who come behind me. Thank you, Veronica. Um, so you have access to the airwaves. Is there one thing you would like to tell everybody? Be kind to one another. Love each other. See people from the inside out. Think the best about each person. Humpty Dumpty was pushed by Kim Renee Anderson 
Code case 041651. The unsolved 1797 murder of Humpty Dumpty, much to the delight of his descendants, has been solved. It was a homicide. Dumpty was not just a member of London's working class with his wife and 10 children, but also one of 1,200 human eggs noted in existence according to England's 1796 census. Yes, Humpty was an actual egg with movable legs and arms, but most importantly, he had a heart of yolk encased in a hard shell. Unfortunately, while sitting on the old London Bridge during happy hour with men who tended to King George III horses, Humpty mysteriously had a great fall on Friday, June 27, 1797. His death was never investigated to the dismay of his widow, who was left to raise 10 egg children alone. However, according to an article that appeared in The Observer two days after Dumpty's death, an unnamed source said that King George III had quite a feast the next day for his stablemen, and to avoid any publicity over Dumpty's death, gave Mrs. Dumpty an exorbitant amount of money under the guise of sympathy and moved her and her children to a house in Bloomsbury with ample land, farm, and animals. Mrs. Dumpty had always suspected foul play and urged the king to investigate her husband's death, but it fell on deaf ears. Thereafter, Dumpty's descendants annually have pleaded with Parliament and even the royal family to take action. And now, after 219 years, the late Queen Elizabeth gave orders for the case to be reopened on April Fool's Day. And just this morning at 9 a.m., Buckingham Palace held a press conference where Scotland Yard Commissioner Sir Bernard Hogan Howe stated that forensic evidence confirmed that Humpty's death was in fact a homicide. Hogan Howe noted that forensic lighting revealed that the angle in which bits of eggshell found were stuck between the bricks of the London Bridge without a doubt indicates that a human egg was pushed from behind. Additionally, he added, not only did further genetic testing done in the egg bits confirm that DNA belonged to Humpty Dumpty, but also fluorescent lighting showed a book was wedged deep within the bricks. When retrieved, the book turned out to be King George III's 219-year-old diary that had been reported stolen by him a month before Dumpty's death. In his diary, the king explained in great detail the planned death of Dumpty, which was triggered by the discovery that Dumpty was his illegitimate older half-brother and how paranoid the king became that the public would find out the truth and human eggs would revolt. Think about it for a second. Based on this fact, Humpty, who was born two years before King George III, should have been in line for the throne upon King George II's death. The diary even explained in great detail that King George II originally had joy upon learning of the birth of his first male heir, Dumpty, which he planned to name King George III and leave his wife for his royal mistress and human egg, Anna Sophie. But upon looking at the child at birth, he ran away in disgust and horror and shame he had produced an egg child. Furthermore, he had Anna Sophie boiled and rolled down a hill never to be seen again. The eight child was taken to an orphanage in Essex and raised by nuns who baptized him Humpty Dumpty. After the death of Dumpty, the human egg population went underground in fear of their lives, never to be seen again, only in the form of the lifeless eggs they give to the hens that pretend to hatch them and we eat them for breakfast. And as soon as the stories of Humpty's existence became a rumor, then a legend, then a myth, and soon a nursery rhyme. Now, 219 years later, with this new revelation, Dumpty descenders are asking for, one, an informal apology from the royal family, two, acknowledgement Humpty was in fact the original King George III, three, they want to have Humpty Dumpty nursing rhyme eliminated from all books, four, any royalties and profits made by publishing companies from the sale of all children's books containing the Humpty Dumpty nursing rhyme go toward the International Society for the Preservation of Human Eggs. Five, Dumpty's living descendants are asking for an undisclosed amount of money for emotional distress caused by years of harassment for being human eggs and lack 
of acknowledgement that their ancestor Humpty Dumpty was in fact pushed. And each of you can do your part by going online now and sign the petition. Humpty Dumpty was pushed. He was real. I am Kim Renee Anderson. I live in D.C. in the Tacoma area. Formerly from Spanish Harlem, a.k.a. El Barrio. I'm a proud New Yorker and a proud SAG-AFTRA member. I have actually been writing for like 20 years, and for some reason, I'm, I'm a former stand-up comic, as I mentioned, I'm a, I'm a SAG-AFTRA member, um, and um, I've been writing and copywriting comedy sketches, plays, um, poems just for years, and I've just never d done anything with them. And um, as of late, perhaps it's influence from COVID, and actually a friend of mine, I'm putting everything together in one anthology. Um, all my writings, this is my, I look at life as a comical twist, a comical way. Um, life is too short for drama, and it, you know, it takes more muscles to frown than to smile. So I, I look at things just just like one of the um, plays that I wrote, this came from a statement someone says, you know, and um, I enjoy writing, just looking at things at a different angle. Like with Humpty Dumpty was push, the idea from that came from, you know, if you go to rest areas in college, people would scribble on the walls and you would always see Humpty Dumpty was push. And so um, I thought, hey, this is kind of funny and did some research about Humpty Dumpty, who was he? and going back with the royal family and the King George III and all that, and I thought it would be kind of just funny. It's about that. And because we always, um, looking at Lord, you know, J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you have Middle Earth, you have humans, you have elves, you have troll, all the different beings. And just imagine if amongst us there are some little, little people, you know, or just the half human, half egg. I mean, think about it. I mean, when you think of the Broadway, one of my favorite Broadway shows, Wicked, you know, Elphaba, you know, and Glinda, and Elphaba is judged differently because of her green skin, because of the color of her skin. And if you think about it, that's so apropos to today, when you're different, you know, and so um, just think amongst us, if you all of a sudden you bring home, you know, a, you know, a, a gnome, you know, if all of a sudden you bring home a, a Klingon, or, you know, any of the little creatures that you talk about, you know, family, you know, I don't want my grandkids flying around, but mama, I love him, you know. I mean, if you think about it, that's what it's, it's all about, and so I, I tend to um, look at things that way, and I think for, it's relaxing, but I think writing, and I think uh, fantasy, and I think just could, um, the written word could bring people more joy and happiness, you know, with all the negativity going on today, so. Well. All right, you have access to the airwaves. What's one thing you want everyone to know? Or what is one thing you want to say to everyone? Stay positive, you know, and as my late cousin, you know, Victor Holiday, he was on NPR, uh, you know, he produced the last year, he said, you know, if you could, if you smile at somebody, you'd be surprised how that smile, they could be having a bad day or something, and you'd be surprised how that smile will make someone feel, even if you don't know them. Walk along the street, hey, how are you? Or just smile at the person. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. You don't have to sit there and exchange numbers or, you know, hey, I'll, hey, I'll buy, hey, you gonna buy me something from Starbucks? Because, you know, you bought something for me? Just smile. Just smile, stay positive, you know? If you can't say anything positive, don't say anything at all. And now I'm going to read you the ending 
of the Dead by James Joyce. If you've not read it, go ahead and read it. It it has one of the most beautiful endings of any story ever written. Also, John Huston made a film based on on the story. Uh, The whole story is about uh, a holiday dinner and uh, what happens there. This is related to the song that I sung earlier in the program, The Last of Agram. In the story, Gabriel watches his wife get emotional as she hears the song and is reminded of a loved one named Michael Fury, who died when she was young. He died at the age of 20. And I think sometimes that's what holidays are for, uh, remembering. After all, we all have memories, positive or negative, about our holidays. And maybe, maybe, that's why we hold them, to remember. She was fast asleep. Gabriel, leaning on his elbow, looked for a few moments unresentfully on her tangled hair and half-open mouth, listening to her deep-drawn breath. So she had had that romance in her life. A man had died for her sake. It hardly pained him now to think how poor a part he, her husband, had played in her life. He watched her while she slept as though he and she had never lived together as man and wife. His curious eyes rested long upon her face and on her hair, and as he thought of what she must have been then in that time of her first girlish beauty, a strange friendly pity for her entered his soul. He did not like to say even to himself that her face was no longer beautiful. But he knew that it was no longer the face for which Michael Fury had braved death. Perhaps she had not told him all the story. His eyes moved to the chair over which she had thrown some of her clothes. A petticoat string dangled to the floor. One boot stood upright, its limp upper fallen down. The fellow of it lay upon its side. He wondered at the riot of emotions of an hour before. From what had it proceeded? From his aunt's supper, from his own foolish speech, from the wine and dancing, the merrymaking, when saying goodnight in the hall, the pleasure of the walk along the river in the snow. Poor Aunt Julia. She, too, would soon be a shade with the shade of Patrick Morcan and his horse. He had caught that haggard look upon her face for a moment when she was singing arrayed for the bridal. Soon, perhaps, he would be sitting in that same drawing room, dressed in black, his silk hat on his knees. The blinds would be drawn down and Aunt Kate would be sitting beside him, crying and blowing her nose and telling him how Julia had died. He would cast about in his mind for some words that might console her and would find only lame and useless ones. Yes, yes, that would happen very soon. The air of the room chilled his shoulders. He stretched himself cautiously under the sheets and lay down beside his wife. One by one, They were all becoming shades. Better pass boldly into that other world in the full glory of some passion than fade and wither dismally with age. He thought of how she who lay beside him had locked in her heart for so many years that image of her lover's eyes when he had told her that he did not wish to live. Generous tears filled Gabriel's eyes. He had never felt that himself. He had never felt like that himself toward 
any woman, but he knew that such a feeling must be love. The tears gathered more thickly in his eyes, and in the partial darkness he imagined he saw the form of a young man standing under a dripping tree. Other forms were near. His soul had approached that region where dwell the vast hosts of the dead. He was conscious of, but could not apprehend their wayward and flickering existence. His own identity was fading out into the gray impalpable world, the solid world itself, which these dead had one time reared and lived in, was dissolving and dwindling. A few light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the bog of Allen and farther westward, softly falling into the dark mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury laid buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living, and the dead. Well, that's what we got for y'all this this month. Um, Check us out next month. We'll have an interview with a local writer about stepmothers. Uh, Do they get a fair shake? I think you know the answer. The answer is no. And we will hear a story, a retelling of of the origins of um, Santa Claus. Until then, do something good for yourself. Don't be afraid to talk to strangers. Tell those you love them that you love them. And get out there and write the most beautiful things and bring them back to us so that we can read them. listened to Get Lit on Easy Public Library podcast recorded from the Recording Lab studio in historic modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, D.C.